Thank you for joining us today on Geezers of Gear, episode number 201. Today's podcast is brought to you by Elation Professional. Elation offers its stadium trio for large-scale arena and stadium projects that require only the most brilliant luminaires. The Proteus Brutus, an LED wash FX light with up to 75,000 lumens of cutting power. The Proteus Excalibur, the brightest IP65 full-featured beam fixture on the market. And, of course, the Proteus Maximus, a 50,000 lumen LED profile luminaire with a complete FX system. These all come equipped with Elation's proven IP65 Proteus Protection, the Brutus, Excalibur, and Maximus, a powerhouse trio of compatible luminaires for maximum impact indoors or out. Check them all out at www.elationlighting.com. And today's podcast is also brought to you by Mainlight. Looking for exceptional value and flexibility in your lighting rental needs? Mainlight, your trusted rental partner, is now offering long-term leasing. You can now take advantage of up to 60% off rental list price with even greater discounts available after 52 weeks. With this attractive leasing option, designed for a minimum term of 26 weeks, you'll find featured items from moving lights, leading consoles, trusts, and LED inventory, allowing your company to stretch its capital expenditures even further. As a lighting rental partner, Mainlight combines the resources of a national company with the personal touch of a local provider by consistently purchasing the latest technology in lighting trusts and consoles. From the newest trusts to a full array of lighting consoles, your lighting will have the tech it needs to reach peak performance. Mainlight also carry a robust inventory of IP65 fixtures, giving you a lighting solution for any outdoor show or venue, come rain, wind, or shine. Visit mainlight.com and trust Mainlight for the gear you want. And finally, please visit Coffee Cult, coffee with a K, cult with a K, dot com, and search for Geezer's Grind. The reviews are coming in constantly. People love this coffee as much as I do. And remember, all proceeds go to Roby Backstage and support folks in our industry with medical or other challenges. Again, please go to coffeecult.com, order Geezer's Grind, and you are supporting people who are in our industry and have needs through Roby Backstage. And Well, hey, Rod. Hey, Marcel. How are you, man? I'm good. You? I'm doing okay. Do you recognize that song, perhaps? Uh, I do, actually. From your oh, youth. <laughs> the two youths. Yeah, two youths. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because people come up to me at like LDI or different trade shows, and they're like, "Hey, dan 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 dan," <laughs> and they have no idea what the song is, but they know it from the intro to my podcast, right? But. You know, this, yeah. the, the story is, and he was actually supposed to record right before you. Gata was supposed to be recording yesterday with me, and um, uh, he had a problem with his cat, so he had to uh, postpone a couple of days. But um, the story is, I reached out to Gata and I said, hey, can you just write me a little jingle for the start of my podcast for, a, for an intro? And he goes, I'm happy to, but, you know, the the um, that guitar lick on... Uh, what's it called? Sweet thing. Um, mm-hmm. Is like the, 
you know, one of the greatest licks I ever wrote. Just use that and I'll write you a release so you never have to pay royalties or anything. And I said, okay. So that's how it became. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, obscure Canadian uh, licks and songs that most of my American friends are like, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, because, I mean, you know, Rush and Triumph made it and Brian Adams and Loverboy made it. But, like, you know, even April Wine, not everyone knows April Wine. Like, some people do, but not a lot of people. But then you get into, like, Harlequin and Streetheart, some of the better bands, or uh, uh, Orphan, you know, uh, Gil's favorite band. Um, I loved, Orphan I loved Pumps. Orphan. Oh, my yeah. God, they were good. Like, just that Queen one song. Dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. What a yeah. great lick. It's just such a cool song. Every time I, you know, it'll come up if I'm on, uh, like, Apple Music has this Canadian classics or whatever it's called that I'll listen to. And it'll come up on there every once in a while. And I'll just, like, stop whatever I'm doing and rock out to it. It's just such a cool song. Cool voice. I still pull up. I have an old uh, uh, little iPod that I still have a ton of old Harlequin and Streetheart. And, and yeah. Kickaxe, all, all, all of the bands that I listened to. When I, I was love that stuff, man. A young man. Yeah. Isn't it crazy that Kickaxe is still going? Yeah, those guys it's, are great. You know? It's wild, and and uh, I forget all their names. But what's what's the bass player's name? Because he still does all the same poses, and he still uses oh. the axe bass and stuff. Vic, you know, Vic, Victor. Yeah, Victor. Right. Yeah. Victor. Yeah, I'm still yeah. in touch with Vic. He he came out a few years back. I went. I was home in Regina, and uh, one of my old. Uh, uh, buddies that I that I used to do lights for his band put on a little reunion and Vic came over and said hi and uh, cool. haven't talked to much of the the other guys for quite some time but uh, but yeah they were like one of the most unfortunate bands of all time for like bad things happening to them uh, yeah. yeah like what they well what they had <laughs> they uh, they had their their all of their instruments stolen in Winnipeg. Um, they had their instruments repossessed before a concert in Ontario. Oh, Jesus Christ. By the sheriffs. So they had to borrow the opening acts instruments to actually play the show. Oh, um, no. I mean, they, they had a, they, they had a rough time of it, you know, and even like their, their third album, they, they, they were supposed to have X amount of money to do that album. Turned out their manager used up that money in other places. So they didn't even have half the money they were supposed oh to have God. to record that album with. And, what that was about, I joined them. Uh, that was when I joined up. Was right near the the end. There we did a couple of quick quick tours of Canada. Yeah. For first, I was like Dean Dean Zarowski's uh, assistant, and then uh, and then he moved on to Harlequin of all bands. Yeah. And <laughs> I moved up and became the LD. Yeah. No, I mean it's amazing. We had some really really great bands in Canada, and you know, again, everybody knows Rush, or most people know Rush. Most people know Triumph. Um, you know, which I'll tell you a weird one. Like I do a bunch of business with Gilmore cause he owns, uh, uh, what's it called? Mass, uh, master something studios. Ooh, I forget <laughs> metalworks, metal. Oh, metalworks. Metal yeah. That, yeah. Metalworks. That's, that's familiar. Yeah. Yeah. In Toronto. And, and they have a production company as well. And I, I sell stuff for him. I sell him stuff every once in a while, but it's funny cause you know, a call will come through and it says Gilmore on my phone. And I'm like, that's so cool. You know, like pinch the me of, you know, 40 years ago. Cause he would be really impressed. But yeah, uh, it was, I actually heard a funny one about, uh, about triumph the other day. And it was, uh, I was talking to a, um, 
uh, it was at Nook's Memorial of all things. You, oh. And uh, and I was talking to a production manager who worked with Triumph back in the day, and he was like, "Yeah, yeah, you remember that band from Canada? Uh, um, you know, Poor Man's Rush, um, um, Triumph, Max Webster." <laughs> <laughs> Max Webster? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of poor man's rushes in Canada. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of like sort of three piece, like really good bands, I think. And I don't know. We had a lot yeah. of good bands, but. Yeah. What was that? There was one San Santos or San. San... Uh, I they, know who you're talking the, about. The guitar player actually played with Triumph, but he kind of played behind the curtain. Right. And uh, that was and the, he... the band was named after him, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 What the hell were they called? San is oh geez, I can't remember yeah. now, but I don't remember either. Somebody will remember. Santos. Santos. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. It's hard to remember I, everything that happened back then because we were all like a little bit into tipsy. some stuff that we weren't supposed <laughs> to be doing for the most part, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think yeah. people understand when the drinking age is eighteen, like I remember going to parties outside of Calgary. There was this place called The Trees, and it was literally just a clump of trees, and everybody would park in the middle of it and light a bonfire, and whoever had the loudest stereo would be blasting the stereo out of their car. And just terrible things happened at these parties, you know? Yes. I mean, it was a good time, but when I look back at it, the stuff I can remember, I was like, wow, we were out of control. You know? Oh, some of, the, some of the parties that took place at the Beacon were oh. know, beyond legendary beyond legendary some of the guy jones I, I, parties were nuts oh, at the vegan yeah. yeah and uh i mean i remember being there with kickaxe and like literally you know the guy walking in the room and taking the mirror off the wall and throwing it on the bed and <laughs> that's about the last thing i remember oh my god <laughs> yeah i there's so many wild stories i'll tell you you know i've i've got a picture of it here somewhere of the night but one night Oh, no, it wasn't the Beacon. It was Misty's at uh, the Westgate. Um, one night, uh, Motley Crue, I'm, I'm backstage with Motley Crue, and I'd been hanging out with, with uh, um, Nikki and Tommy all day, driving them around in my Corvette with the two of them with me, three of us in a, in a 77 Corvette or whatever it was with the tops off because they were so big. And they were just like, yeah, let's go over here. Yeah, let's do this. And I'm like, this is insane. You know, I'm a taxi driver for unruly rock stars. But um, so at the end of the night, this was right after they killed the guy from uh, Hanoi Rocks, uh, right yep. after, um, uh, what's his name, the singer? Razzle? <laughs> no, yeah, but Razzle was the one who, Vince Neil was driving yep. and Razzle died. And uh, so they were kind of on lockdown and Tommy... I don't know if I should say this out loud, but Tommy was really into, and I don't know if you remember a girl who worked for us at Mainly Music called Bev. Really, really nice looking young lady. She went on to become a movie star, uh, moved to Vancouver, got married, whatever. I haven't spoken to her in 30 years probably. But but anyways, Tommy was really into Bev, and Tommy was married at the time to, I believe, Heather Locklear. And... Um, Anyways, the road manager or the tour manager wanted no part of it. He's like, get in the bus. We're all leaving together, Tommy. And he goes, no, man, I want to hang out with my buddies and go to this club. And, and we're going to hang out and have some fun. We'll behave, I promise. No, no, Tommy. And I could hear over the radio. It was like, no, Tommy, get in the fucking bus. You know, it's time to go because they had to go to Edmonton. And so long story short, the bus is following my Corvette to 
to Misty's to go to see Guy Jones band at Misty's. And um, I call the girl at Misty's and I'm like, hey, it's Marcel. Hey, Marcel, you coming down? I'll put you on the list. I go, yeah, it's me plus Bev, who's sitting next to me, and Motley Crue. And she goes, yeah, okay, whatever. And I go, no, no. She goes, who do you want on the list? I said, me, Bev, and Motley Crue. And she's like, whatever, I'll see you in a bit. And, you know, we pull up the bus right in front of Misty's and they all come in. Well, not all of them. Vince wasn't allowed to leave the bus, but it was, uh, I think it was just Tommy and Nikki. And that's when I learned that that stuff that they were drinking, I thought it was like iced tea coming out of Jack Daniels bottles, right? But we went to the end of the bar and they got like water glasses filled with Jack Daniels and we did a toast and they banged them back. And I'm like watching them going, oh, I guess I got to drink the whole thing. And, uh, and then they're like more, 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 you know? And I was just like, man, I can't do this. I can't keep up with you guys. And then Tommy got up and played, uh, smoking in the boys room with, with Guy Jones and he fell off the riser off the back of the stage. And <laughs> it was just debauchery and ended up in, in a party in a couple of the Guy Jones rooms upstairs. And oh my God, total debauchery. Yeah. Those, I mean, some of the parties that I, that took place in, in those days, um, were far worse than the, uh, um, than, than some of the parties that I saw, you know, working for, for acts later in, in life, in life. Yeah. Yeah. No, the real debauchery was in the eighties in the clubs. Oh yeah. In in Western Canada. Yeah. Well, I mean, even were, were you around when Guns N' Roses played at the Beacon and there were like 40 people there or something? I wasn't there. I I heard about it, but I was off some yeah. other band yeah i was there and i mean they were garbage it was like what could you say they're no good you know we weren't used yeah. to that music yet either you know so yeah well it didn't didn't motley crew end up getting in like a fight up in edmonton after that they, they ended up going up to edmonton and getting into uh, a big scrap with some people uh, there's like some legendary me. motley crew story of, of them i think at the convention in south at ci south oh um, boy i remember some debauchery stuff. there too yeah. Bad stories. Yeah. Bad, bad stories. Or the Rex. <laughs> Remember the Rex? Ooh, oh, who could forget bad, the Rex? Bad, bad stories. Yeah. Half weeks. Play, you know, I always wanted to play the last three days, not the first three days of the Rex. Uh, I saw Killer Dwarfs there like a couple of times and, and just hanging out with those guys. And it was just stupidity. You know, it was just oh, always yeah. stupidity. Like they how were, we're, how we're still alive, you know? It's, yeah. It's they were buddies thing. with the, with the kickaxe guys. And, and, uh, so they would come out every now and then when I was working with Kickaxe. As a matter of fact, we ended up having a barbecue in Winnipeg at uh, at Daryl Dwarf's house, the drummer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I remember everybody Darryl. sitting around listening to White Snake. Yeah, <laughs> those guys were all true to form. <laughs> so you know, I mean, I didn't even really introduce you, um, mm-hmm. but Rod Gibson, I think, better known as Red, and so yep. Red, it's not too much of a stretch to figure out where that name came from. No. Uh, no, you have one of the probably less interesting roadie nicknames, you know, cause everyone yeah, else was... has a story behind their nickname. You're just a redheaded guy called red, right? Yeah. It was actually kind of handy that way. Cause, uh, nobody tagged me with anything that was, uh, <laughs> you know, any worse. Yeah. Once you, know, you just got that name and I, and I kind of like my buddies didn't call me red when I was growing up. Uh, that came when I, I went to work in a, in a pipe mill at a, after I'd gotten out of high school, oh. uh, in Regina called Ipsco. And, um, 
and all the other guys had nicknames and what and and whatnot and you know kind of and somebody just tagged me with red and they all just started calling me that and so it was just like well it's kind of easy and it it, my real name's rod so pretty close yeah so and, do and every, it, everybody remembers in your adult years do people still call you red or is it rod mostly red oh really you know, huh. yeah family calls me red calls me rod but you know yeah. most of the people that uh that i work with in the business know me as red yeah, because I mean, it, some of those roadie stage name or not stage names, but road names or whatever you want to call it, nicknames, seem to stick, and and other ones kind of go away when you come off the road, I guess. Um, yeah. And there's some weird like, ones like poop, you know. Although his last name is pooping or poping or yeah, however well, you say yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah, uh, that's, that's an unfortunate nickname, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your name? Poop. Oh, yeah, never, how'd you get first that? time I. Yeah, every, first yeah. time I ever heard that was uh, uh, I was actually on tour with Skinnerd, and we had a Schoenberg moving uh, motor system. Okay. And uh, and my motor guy Bill uh, came up to me. He goes, "Hey, I just got a call from uh, this dude that they, they called me to ask about the Schoenberg system. They gave him my name. He had like the worst nickname ever." I'm like, "Really? What was that?" He goes, "Poop." I'm like, "That is a terrible nickname." Yeah. <laughs> but then I later met you know Poop and yeah. found out Poping kind of fit. And, yeah. I think I met him when he was with Creed. I think I had a bunch of stuff out with them and he was the LD inspected and stuff and became very friendly with him. But um, yeah, I always thought that was a funny one. I, there's so many funny ones out there, but so you, you grew up in Regina, which yep. everyone outside of Canada just thinks it's a, a name that rhymes with fun. Right. Yep. Um, that can't really be a city name. Like everybody chuckles every time they hear the name of the, yeah. of the city, right? My my wife told one of her friends when we lived in Georgia. She said, "Oh yeah, well, well Rod's from Regina," and he said, "I'm." She said, "I'm pretty sure a good Southern girl would call that Regina." <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, or you could it, watch your dog run away for three days. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, and. My girlfriend is British, and uh, we I'm up in Canada right now in, in uh, Canmore, just outside of Calgary, in the mountains. And um, so we flew my, or flew, we shipped my car into Chicago. Brilliant idea, which I'll never do again. But we shipped my car to Chicago and then drove from Chicago up to here. 22-hour drive or something. Stopped to see some friends on the way. But we went through Regina, and once she got over laughing... She was like, wow, you can see really far here. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's kind of the idea. You know, yeah. it's pretty flat. It yeah. freaked my wife out the first time that I took her uh, home to meet my parents. And we drove from Vancouver to uh, to Regina. And uh, and when we got out, you know, onto the prairies, uh, she grew up in Princeton. And so she was used to be, being in the mountains. And, yeah. Uh, and seeing mountains around her. And so when we got out on the prairies, it freaked her out. She was like, it feels too open. Yeah. I, I feel exposed. And I was like, well, it's, this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. She said, she said, you used to like deer hunt and stuff. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, where the hell would you hunt deer out here? There's no trees. <laughs> yeah. Where are they hiding? <laughs> you know, she goes, what kind of stupid much... deer are you hunting? They, yeah, they, you they, they, they don't see you coming for a mile. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Crazy. No, it's true. You know what? Speaking of deer, so on mm -hmm. said drive that I took from Chicago, we started seeing roadkill deer in Wisconsin 
Like I'm talking every couple of miles, another deer. We counted, and I mean, we probably started 10 in and said, we're going to start counting these. And I think we got to like 36 or something. I I mean, I don't understand what the deal is with deer in Wisconsin getting run over by cars. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. You probably haven't uh, experienced this crazy thing the, the part i uh, you know was was when you go through wyoming and you 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 see things that got like it's so in the desolate areas of wyoming you know when you get around the devil's tower and stuff right and you just see things hanging off of like barbed wire fences where they got nailed by semis going by <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> you got hit like good. a scene from <laughs> yeah yeah well some yeah, of these things you see out was... of the windows of a bus you know as you're going by true huh true no, but some of these deer in Wisconsin were like mangled, you know, like they definitely yeah. got hit by something big, you know, but I just, I thought it was weird. Like I've seen roadkill, but nothing like that. And, you know, I, it's funny cause it reminded me, I used to have a, a British business partner who, um, he, he kind of grew up in rural England and was sort of an English version of a redneck, you know? And uh, whenever he saw roadkill, he'd pull over, and if it was still warm, he'd throw it in the back of his truck and take it home and carve it up and barbecue it, whatever it was. It didn't matter what it was. And uh, I was just like, are you serious? Like, So every time I see like a dead something on the side of the road, I'm thinking, yep, he'd be eating that right now. Right. Well, there was, you know, when I lived in the South, that wasn't uh, uncommon uh, for people to pick things up. There was yeah. one day I actually had a a guy coming over to fix my, my washer and he was handyman that, you know, came over all the time. And, and, uh, he came in late and, um, he, he wasn't there and he was, he was always on time. So I ended up finally getting a phone call from him and, and he says, Hey, I can't make it. I hit a deer. And I said, Oh, no, no problem. He said, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. So he came in the next day. I said, so you hit a deer. And he says, yeah, I was coming down the road in my van and there was a van coming towards me and a deer ran out of the, out of the, the ditch in front of the van that was coming at me and that guy ran it ran into it and then another buck came out of the ditch just as i was watching that another buck came out of the ditch from the other side right in front of me and bam i hit it and Jesus. we were stopped like 40 yards apart on the road and each got a dead deer in front of us and he said about five minutes past guy pulled up in a pickup truck looked at the other guy said hey you want that he said, nope threw it in the back of his truck left five more minutes passed another guy came coming the other way in a truck said, you want that? Nope. Threw it in the back of his truck. He said, no, nope, not 15 minutes had passed and they were both gone. And it was just two wrecked vans in the middle of the road. Crazy. <laughs> and then you're trying to tell the cop, no, seriously, there were deer oh, here. There were deer here. <laughs> I'm telling you, we hit deer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's funny. So grew up in Regina and yep. um, were you into the music scene there? Like, you know, cause there's some great bands that came out of Regina. We mentioned a few of them like Orphan and that stuff. And, yeah, um, Queen City Kids, yeah, which, uh, another great uh, band. Cambridge, they were originally like called Cambridge. Yeah, um, um, I, I wasn't really into the scene so much. Um, uh, but my buddy, uh, one of my best friends, um, was a guitar player, and uh, and he started his first band when he was about sixteen years old, and uh, so you know, kind of hung around while they was they played a you know the uh, the high school dances and whatnot, and yeah. Um, but it never really was into the scene so much, um, you know, had my own thing that I was doing and, um, and sort of was on the fringe when I'd be around my buddy's band and whatnot. And, and then, uh, um, just kind of 
one day you know, it was the early 80s and you know recession and i got laid off from my my gig out at ipsco in the pipe mill and yeah and uh and my buddy was like hey we need we're doing a, a show down in i think esteban or weyburn somewhere in southern saskatchewan we need somebody to do the lights can you do it sure <laughs> so so i went down there and you know set up this little light show and I'm like okay i can play along and, and did it was that just for a like while. light switches right turn them on turn them off it like was, yeah, it was a made. six, I think, I want to say I had 18 lights and six channels, Yeah, you know, so, uh, grouped them up as best you could with, uh, and, and then tried to figure out how to, to play like the first couple of gigs. I don't think I even had a snake long enough to get out, out in front of the band. I did it from beside the stage. Yeah. So, yeah. Most of the and, light guys uh, that I had when I was playing you know, we never did anything big. So our light guy was always at the side of the stage. Like I, never, <laughs> yeah. I never knew a light guy to be out at the front of house. You know, that was like unheard of. Yeah. In my yeah. So in later years, when I, when I went back to, you know, I, I, I ended up leaving that and working as a, a truck driver for a little bit and then uh, moved to Alberta to work on the oil rigs and just hated the bloody oil rigs. That was the worst job in the world. It pays well, but yeah, it's hard work, huh? Yeah, a lot of money, but just you're just covered in oil and goo all the time. You know, it yeah. comes out of your pores, and um, yeah. and it was cold. You know, yeah, uh, winter in El. I think it was. I I was on out of where I remember it the most is I was actually out on a rig when the uh, shuttle blew up and oh. heard about it over the radio when we were wow. out there. Yeah, and yeah, and then uh, and then so when I ended up my buddy called and said, Hey, putting the band back together, you want to come do lights? And, and I thought, well, you know, I could do that. That'd be a whole lot more fun than doing what I'm doing right now. And, yeah. uh, so I did. And, uh, and I, the, my, I had 24 lights and a 12 channel, um, Ari switcher board, no dimming, okay. just two scenes of 12, just keep switching them up and then flipping between them. And then, little bump buttons on the top so you could individually hit a channel but they had the sharpest little um uh buttons and they would just i had calluses like a guitar player on my fingers uh, holding those buttons interesting <laughs> yeah. you know so you had no experience no knowledge like just the little six channel desk that you had the one time and now this one and you were just kind of learning as you go right somebody Pretty needs much, to turn yeah. on and off the lights might as well be you yeah and uh, well the one of the guitar players in the band actually owned the light lighting system. He had, he had uh, um, sort of imitated the Gil Hopkins method of, well, own the lights. And then when the band breaks up, take the lights with you yeah, and become a business. It seemed um, to do okay for Gil. Worked out well for Gil. Yeah, and, as a matter of fact, out. Gil was with my buddy who's, uh, who I started doing lights for his first kind of touring band. Gil Hopkins was the lighting guy for. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how I met. Gil grew Gil. up in Regina as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He was a drummer, and you know, drummers yeah. tend to gravitate towards lights. I think. Yeah. Uh, um, Interesting. But uh, yeah, so Gil, uh, uh, I knew, and and when I took the job, I was like, well, you know, Gil's at that point. Gil was actually fairly successful in Calgary, and and you know, by my measurement of success, he had an apartment and a van, and <laughs> and a, and, a, and owned, yeah. owned a bunch of lights. So yeah, so. Uh, Gil Hopkins, just for those who are listening or watching and don't know, Gil Hopkins owned a company called ProLight Productions in Calgary for many years. I met him, I don't even remember when, probably 80 yeah. 
two or something. In the eighties, yeah. Uh, yeah, he he I guess was probably sort of the go to lighting shop in Calgary for a long time. For a long time, yeah. He was that uh there there really wasn't a, another lighting company there and uh and and he was in in a warehouse with a company called Rocky Mountain Sound. Yeah. And so they would often get hired together to do uh shows and small events around town and whatnot. So Yeah. Yeah, cool. So you're you're now doing lights for the guy for your buddy. Yeah. And you've left the oil rigs. And yes. was that like sort of the last real job you ever had, that oil rig job? Yep. Cool. Yeah, that was the, the end lighting of it. business ever since. Yeah, for about just about about 40 years now. So. Wow, that's quite a run. Yeah. And they, said, yeah. and they said it wouldn't last, right? It was kind of funny when I when I went and did it. Of course, you know, my family wanted to disown me and uh and everybody's like, "Well, when are you going to like, you know, when are you get a real job?" I'm like, yeah. This is a real job. I get yeah. paid. Not much, but I get paid. Yeah. And I always, you know, funnily enough, when I started doing it, you know, uh, Gil was a bit of a, an inspiration to me because he, he had done something with his time in the, with the bands. And I, I thought that there was, there was always a place to go. There was some upward mobility within it. I didn't just want to be working for the band. And I never referred to myself as a member of any of the bands. I was like, no, no, I work for them. I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm not a member. They'll, not they'll, they'll break up. They'll go on to whatever. I'm, I'm looking to get me somewhere in this yeah. business. Yeah. So I became more focused as time went on about that. Yeah. It, it's amazing how many companies started out just like that, you know, like Gills, uh, but upstaging, you know, Robert, yeah. Robert Carone was buddies with the guys in cheap trick and they needed a lighting guy. He went and bought a few lights and it, got to be a few more and a few more as the band grew. So did upstaging, you know, and yeah. uh, the rest is history. I mean, one of the, one of the, the great touring companies out there. Yeah. Well, I think like even like East coast stage lighting, uh, I think Bob kind of built that on Boston for the yeah. most part. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was kind and of funny how the, how the people grew up around bands that, that, you know, and they just kept servicing it because there really wasn't that much of a, a huge business, you know, well, you know Smoother's story with Delicate too, right? Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He came here with Super Tramp and he needed a company and boom, he started one. So Yeah. He kept yeah. all the all that Martin PA. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I've so stacked what's next? a few boxes of Martin PA uh over the years well, through those. Yeah, I mean I'm old enough to remember like when we used to play, we were playing with the JBL W bins and the forty five sixty mid range things and I think it was Altec yeah. horns or something. I mean yeah. it was heavy, it was big, it was loud and obnoxious, there was tons of feedback and stuff. There was no science behind it. It was just raw horsepower. You need more power. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden Martin came out with these small sleek boxes, you know, that were kind of funky shaped and this mid range thing that don't open that. You don't need to know what's yeah. in it. Right. The mid, the, the, the mid thing was like, fill a shave. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but you know, it was like, Whoa, this is secret science stuff going on here. And yeah. the stuff was a lot smaller, sounded really good. And all of a sudden people had double stacks of that stuff on each side and, you probably did. I remember uh, boys' room used to have a whole lot of PA. Oh yeah, and a yeah. and a whole and a bus to carry it in. Yeah, yeah. So boys' room. What was what was the singer's name? I think he worked for me for a while at Mainly Music in Edmonton. Uh, Kevin Hicks. 
Kevin. Yeah. 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 I he's wonder... still around. He he lives up in uh I see him on Facebook a lot. He lives up in uh um northern northern BC. Oh I think, wow. I think he works in the in the, the pipeline industry up there. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I was uh I was pretty close with Kevin for a while and and uh he needed to get off the road because I think maybe it was his wife. He got married really young and and uh, I think she wanted him off the road or something and uh and that didn't end well. Um but yeah. One well, didn't uh Jim Jim Yakabuski worked for Boys Room too, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So you were the lighting yeah. guy, he was sound guy? Actually, he left um, prior to my, I knew Jim, uh, we met, you know, through the course of bands over the years. And, and right. uh, he left just prior to my joining. The uh, The guy who was doing lights, Wayne, decided to move over to sound when, when Jim left oh, okay. uh, and made his trek south. Um, I think basically said, you know, I'll come work at DB Sound. I'll just do anything in the shop until you send me on the road or do something. So... Well, he I left think, and, and went off, you know, I'm sure there's a whole lot more to the story than that. Yeah. But, uh, he left and went down south. And so uh, their lighting guy moved over to being a uh, sound guy. And I came came on board as the lighting guy. Right. And uh, and then I worked with Jim later uh, in Vancouver with a couple of different bands uh, when he was in between uh, Triumph. <laughs> he actually yeah. worked for Triumph, for, uh, come full circle. Um, yeah. Crazy. And uh, yeah, but uh yeah, Jim. Jim was kind of, it was a bit of an inspiration to me because he he just went. He was like he he went for it. You know, decided yeah. to go and, and do something. Yeah. And, no, uh, me too. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when I moved to the U.S., he was probably one of the guys who inspired me to do it. You know, he he was like, oh man, it's such a bigger market and there's so many more opportunities. And in a sense, he was right. I mean, for me, I felt like I wanted to be a bigger fish, and the pond was too small in Canada. And, um, so, you know, that was part of my motivation. Plus I, I married a, an American girl who, you know, she wasn't going to move to Canada. So if I wanted to have this relationship, I had to move to the U S anyway, but yeah. So, I mean, similar motivation, but wasn't I, and you might not even know this, but I seem to remember Jim's first like real gig with DB was, Hey, go out and do monitors for this guitar player guy named Ingwi Melmstein. And (laughs) He said it was the toughest gig he had ever done in his life because first he wanted his guitar at like warp volume in every stage monitor, right? Like, so nobody could hear anything except his guitar and it was just squealing and feeding back all the time. And whenever it made a noise it wasn't supposed to make, he'd just look over at the side of the stage at the monitor guy and just go like, I'm going to kill you and fire you, you know? Yeah. And uh, I guess he just wasn't an easy guy to work for back in those days. No, and uh, yeah, and he had the, yeah. So he he did was like that, and he did a few other things. He ended up with uh, Striper and, and a few other yeah. bands. But so, but he was that was kind of inspired me. Like, well, if Jim can do it, then I could do it too. Yeah. yeah. And I found the same sort of thing. It was like after I had uh, you know worked in the in the in the bar scene in in Western Canada for a long time. Eventually, I just, uh, I was like, you know, things weren't going to happen in, in Alberta. It was a, it was, you either had to, I figured you either had to go to Toronto or Vancouver. Yeah. And I didn't want to go to Toronto, I but I loved Vancouver. And I thought yeah. that whole scene there was, and that was right about the time that Bon Jovi had just, you know, released Slippery When Wet. And, uh, and the Vancouver scene was just hopping. And, 
So well, I moved there. I'm sure you don't know this, but um, Bruce Fairbairn is or mm-hmm. was my cousin. And oh, I didn't uh, know that. cousin through, so not a blood cousin. My, my mom remarried when I was young and my mm-hmm. stepdad, uh, uh, it was his relative. So that's ah. where I got my name from, Fairbairn. And oh. uh, so anyways, yeah, cousin. But the thing is, I didn't really even realize that until I had quit being a musician. And I'm like, well, geez, why didn't I ever put two and two together and realize that this famous producer, you know, not that he could do anything for my terrible playing, but, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, if Motley Crue got famous, you know, I guess I probably could have as a bass player, you know, but uh, there was a lot of bands that, that, you know, recorded there that, uh, yeah. you know, Bruce made sound really good. Yeah. Well, Aerosmith Pump was, was one of them. I mean, that was such an incredible album and. And Bon Jovi, yeah. Slippery When Wet, and like just lots and lots of really great stuff he did. He was he was a bit of a genius. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that Vancouver whole, you know, was hopping. You know? Yeah, it really was. And that and then you know, but what I found over the years was like you know, like I ended up working in Vancouver for a long time, and 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 I did a few tours in you know in Canada, but there was always you always ran up and it was it was funny because the Canadian scene was was really small even on a national level. Yeah, it was like. You know, you went on tour. Uh, like I, I remember, I went on tour once with the Bare Naked Ladies uh, a little later in my career. But it was got off that tour, and then I started a tour with the Tragically Hip, and in the new year, and it was like got on the same bus that I'd been on in the Bare Naked Ladies. The oh truck drivers goodness. were the same truck drivers that had been on the Bare Naked Ladies. It was, yeah. you know, half of the crew that was on that that was was people that had been on the last tour I'd been on. Oh my God. Yeah. Very when small I worked feeling. In the, yeah. When yeah. I worked in the States, it was, it was like, you know, you ended a tour and then you went to the next tour. It was, you know, new different sound companies. It might be, you know, Maryland sound might be Shoco, might be Claire brothers, you know, um, amongst others. And, you know, and you always ran into different people. It was such a, yeah. a different market from, from yeah. what you, you saw in Canada. I used to, yeah. you know, no, I, I completely agree with that. I completely yeah. agree with that. So somehow you ended up in the U.S. How did how did that happen? Um, well, I ended up, I was doing a tour for uh, for Marty. I tried to, to look at who was who in the U.S. And, um, but, you know, you can't just send resumes out. People don't react to that kind of thing. You have to get known by somebody. Yeah. And I ended up um, doing a tour for, for a country artist named Marty Stewart. And... Okay. Um, the LD was a guy named Dino DeRose yeah. and he, uh, he had just finished kiss. He had been Kiss's LD for several tours mm-hmm. and had just finished the revenge tour. And he was doing this tour for Marty Stewart. And, uh, and he had to leave a little early to, uh, to go to, uh, very light school. He was going to do very lights for Hank Williams jr. Uh, but he had done, he'd also been uh, Cinderella's lighting director as well. Right. Yeah. And uh, so he had kind of a, a, an interesting resume of working with a lot of bigger bands. And at the end of the tour, when he was leaving, he uh, he pulled me aside and said, hey, would you come work for me south of the border? Yeah, I would. So I said, OK, I'll be in touch. You know, get get your resume together and send you know, and send it to this this company in, in Atlanta called R.A. Roth. Uh-huh. So, OK, so I put my resume together, such as it was, and sent it off. And I didn't hear anything for months um didn't think much of it and i uh ended up um one day i got my pager just started going off at like five o'clock in the morning and you know lived in a little apartment in burnaby and 
couldn't figure out who the hell was trying to call me because it was like you know five in the morning and uh i worked with club bands and whatnot still and a little bit and so you know didn't go to bed that early so five in the morning was a little <laughs> early for me and i didn't want to get up and answer the pager so but it just wouldn't stop so finally i got up and i listened to it and it was this guy from atlanta and he said that you know he'd gotten my name from dino and they wanted me to crew chief deep purple in south america Damn. So said, oh okay yeah <laughs> who called you little, was, uh, it, was it roth or was it looney it was uh bill conti oh there you go. Yeah. yeah. There's a name from the past. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I ended up uh, going to see, go, I, I had a union call that day to, to do uh, the Stone Temple Pilots out at uh, uh, the P&E. And it was the Stone Temple Pilots and the Butthole Surfers. And they were playing in the, the old pool out there, you know, and it was a West Sun stage. Uh, West Sun was a company I worked with a lot. And uh, anyway, I got out there and they were late. They'd gotten held up at the border and uh, had a tough time coming in. And so I just heard all this news this morning from about this, you know, possibly working for R.A. Roth and, and it was an R.A. Roth gig. So I started dropping names, you know, around people to see if they would uh, react. And the guy who was the lighting crew chief said, finally stopped me, says, what's your name? And he goes, uh, I said, you know, it's Rod Gibson. Most people call me Red. He goes, you're the guy I'm supposed to talk to. I talked to Dino about you last night. Uh, I need you to join this tour tomorrow in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> and which tour was that? Stone Temple Pilots? Stone Temple Pilots. Oh, wow. And you were just, you were labor, local labor. Local labor, just uh, on the union call. Jesus. Uh, but I had gotten a call from the company that morning. So the next day I drove down to Seattle and jumped on the bus and, uh, and that wow. was the, the start of my working for American companies. And you were crew chief? No, I was just one of the lighting guys on that one. Oh, okay. Uh, I was actually a bit of the bit of the bitch boy for the uh for the LD who I won't mention because they don't like him. Wow. <laughs> okay then. I'm gonna have to look but, it up on my own. So <laughs> at at what point did you meet RA? Um I met RA when we got to Atlanta on that tour. Um so uh and Robert you know, uh, the inimitable Robert Roth came in very loud, um, you know, shirt open down to here. He doesn't have an indoor said, voice. No. <laughs> Robert doesn't have an indoor. It's like, shh, we're in the yeah. Beverly Hills Hotel. You can't talk that loudly. Shh. Yeah, go out to dinner and, and look, all the tables around are listening to your conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the guy. I mean, he's, he's, uh, He's a good guy. He's a great storyteller and he's a good sales guy. And you he's know, one, one of the, the best. one of the funny things about Robert, not funny, but one of his his probably his secret sauce kind of things is I think he's one of the best account execs at dealing with troubled people, <clears throat> mm -hmm. difficult designers or difficult production managers or just, you know, really complex situations. He's really good at it. Like it, he doesn't get flustered. No, what I always liked about Robert and what he kind of taught me um, over the years working with him was Robert was always very solution oriented. Yeah. Not yeah. worried about the problem. It's how do we get past the problem and onto the yeah. solution? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. I, I love Robert. I talk to him all the time still. But yeah. so, yeah, so you met him. And met him and, uh, and I ended up, you know, finishing up that tour. Um, didn't really know Robert, but... Uh, uh, Bill 
pulled me aside when we were in Atlanta and, and asked me if, uh, if I could, could rig. And I said, well, I rig, but you know, uh, like ground rigger at the Coliseum and, you know, rig a few small gigs. I can, you know, hang a few points, but I was never like a rigger, like a tour rigger. And he was like, well, could you tour rig for Bobby Brown? I was like, that seems a little more complicated than, than what I could do. But, uh, um, so I didn't end up taking that gig cause it seemed like it was, would have been a stretch and, yeah. uh, and I went back to Canada and they called me that fall and said, uh, said, Hey, we need you to go out and do Leonard Skinner. So, uh, so I, uh, uh, they sent me flight information and whatnot and I flew By down way, to Atlanta. Sorry to interrupt, but how does that work? Like when, when you're a Canadian and you live in Canada and R.A. Roth calls you and says, we need to put you out on this tour. Are they paying you? How are they paying you? Or are you just a contractor or how does that work? Um, there's some interesting things. And I'm, I'm not with the that. IRS. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not investigating you. Not yeah. that they investigate anyone, by the way, but, no. uh, yeah. Well, as far as, as far as, you know, as interestingly enough, the IRS doesn't care as long as you file the taxes and I always filed right. the taxes. Right. Um, but Robert 1099 does. So we were contractors basically. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And for me, it was, you know, being a Canadian, it was like taking a 25 to 30% bump in pay. Yeah. When, when I converted back to Canadian, right? Yeah. You're getting your same yeah. rate, but in us dollars. A yeah. dollar is a dollar when you're out on the road, right? But until you go and put it back in your Canadian bank and go, whoa, that yeah. happened. That was that nice. works. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I ended up uh, going down, flying down to Atlanta and, you know, landed at the airport. This is my first time in the Atlanta airport. Landed at like, you know, 10 or 11 at night and then had to go catch the train. They said, get off at this station. Uh, so I got on the Marta, <laughs> Marta train, you know, never been in, never really been in atlanta other than at the uh at, at chastain at the amphitheater and now yeah. all of a sudden here i am uh on a, at the airport in the middle of the night and getting on a train to some stop i don't know and got off there and and uh uh it was the middle of the hood and just kind of wondering about what i was doing standing there with my luggage at the end of this cul-de-sac that's where the a, train left me a off. deep dive into culture at that point right yeah. taking the martyr into the wrong neighborhood Oops. Yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this this piece of junk Honda Civic comes roaring around the corner, you know, half a muffler and you know, no hubcaps and been in several accidents, obviously, and comes whipping around and whips in front of me and Bill Conti opens the door and says, <laughs> get in, throw your luggage in the trunk. Oh my god. So I did and they took me straight to the shop. I walked into the shop and uh by this time it's about one o'clock in the morning and they're in the middle of prep. For the gig so there's and that's when i met bob looney for the first time uh -huh. he was the crew chief in the ld and uh and they pointed me that that's your truss over there go put the wheels on it <laughs> so i literally went over and pulled these pieces of truss and got got a forklift over and lifted it up and put wheels on the bottom of it and started figuring out how to patch the the, the system because robert had a very interesting way of, of patching uh, lighting that nobody else used. Yeah. Um, the, the weed box and the pile national, the big pile national 19 pin or was it 19? And it, it was, uh, we ended up having like a 16 channels for, per box or something like that. If my yeah. memory serves me correctly. And, uh, I had to patch this thing and, and wire the ACLs in series in the, 
within the little box and, and learn all of this stuff. And, and speaking of nicknames at that point, I didn't know Bob, Bob at all. So yeah. after a couple of days and prep and whatnot and getting this thing together, I finally turned to him and I said, so why do they call you Looney? I assumed it was a nickname. Yeah, because that's <laughs> my name. Yeah. yeah, that's my name. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's yeah. a great so name. Yeah, and so I ended up touring with that Skinner tour with Looney and and uh, Rob Savage and Jim Chapman's brother, um, and uh, and I forget who else was all there, but it was a rough tour. Um, yeah, the Skinner guys were 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 pretty rough. Yeah, it was. Uh, there, there was. I hadn't seen that much uh, uh, white stuff around since my days in Western Canada. So, well, they were what pretty was, hard. Uh, what what's the base? Uh, Leon, Leon yeah. Looney, I think was telling me a story about, um, Leon disappeared after a gig. I think it was in like Jacksonville or something. And mm-hmm. then the next night they were playing like West Palm at the shed and, um, and nobody had seen or heard of Leon. And yeah. it's now like, you know, an hour before sound check and people are starting to freak out and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, Leon comes walking up with no shoes on wearing the same clothes that he had the night before, you know, big smile on his face. He's like, Hey guys, we sound checking. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. it's just crazy. Le- Leon was an interesting character. Yeah. He, he, I spent a little time with him. Um, oh, did you? Oh yeah. He, he liked to go. Up. So I ended up doing that tour with him. And when I ended that tour, I said, never again, I am not going out with Leonard Skinner ever again <laughs> in my life. My ain't going to take it. Well, and, and just, um, uh, they were so, um, what's the word I'm searching for? Screwed up yeah. um, all the time. Like yeah. there was just so much drugs out there and so much alcohol. I mean, the whole gig could be in, in the, in the shitter they in the like, morning, but they like to party. <laughs> yeah. The gig could be in the, be in the shitter in the morning, but there was always, you know, 24 Heinekens on ice in the production office at 7am, you know? Oh my God. You know, you could get wow. your per diem however you wanted it. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so that's funny. you know, it was it was literally a lot of a lot of that, and uh, and I just it was it was really hard to you know it, things don't go smoothly when things are like that. So yeah, um, well, I can completely understand that. So and you know, as a uh, uh, you know, as someone from from Canada now touring with a lot of people from the Southern United States, it was a, a very eye-opening experience for me, shall we say. Yeah. Um, things, yeah. A lot, of, you were, a lot of things I had never heard or heard before or seen before, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, same me coming from Canada and, you know, I never had anything to do with touring. I sold guitars in Canada mm-hmm. and, and then I got into selling sound systems and lighting packages and stuff. So I got hired by Martin because I was one of the few people who knew anything about their product and that turned into a really great career, but I didn't have any access to, like, I mean, did I have access to touring? Yes. You know, I did clubs myself. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of friends that did clubs. I worked for Brimstone Productions at one point back in the day for Bear at Brimstone. And I was like a scrawny little 130 pound kid or whatever doing security for Brimstone Productions for like Kiss and all these big shows and stuff. I'm like, what am I going to do security? You know, I ain't stopping anybody. I'll just move out of the way, you know. But uh, I had to stop that, though, at a Kiss gig in Calgary. Um, 
the a truck driver for Kiss said, "Hey, hey, come over here," you know, and he's showing me where the beer is, and I'm like 16 or 17 years old. I'm like, "Hey, cool." I was probably 16, and um, you know, he's like, "Hey, you can drink this stuff," you know, and I'm like, "Oh, really?" And he pours me a vodka or something. Well, then next thing I realized, this guy's hitting on me. Like this truck driver <laughs> wants me to go hang out in his truck with him. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not happening. So I decided this gig ain't for me. Plus I'm a little too scrawny to be a, to be a uh, security guy. But, but yeah, I mean, same thing when I got to the U S and I started like, I won't say which tour or which guy it was, but I went to a particular show and I was standing in front of house next to the, next to the LD at the, the uh, I forget which Avo desk it was. I think a diamond, uh, the one that had the the keyboard tray that everybody used for blow. And yeah. so I'm standing next to him, and he pulls out the tray, and it's got like you know ten nicely cut little lines in it or whatever. And he goes, "Partake," and I'm like, "No, no, I'm good, thank you." But I'm just sitting here going, "Fuck!" There's like twenty thousand people in this arena, and you're doing lines of blow out of the console right now like holy shit what's going on so yeah. yeah that was sort of my indoctrination i don't know if you remember but many years ago when you were still working for martin i did a, a tour for yes and at the end of the tour you brought out a bunch of swag uh yeah. at the tour and yeah. i have the martin putter that you gave me I oh used really it for years as my as my is my putter in that was a terrible putter you used that thing yeah I used to have to Just wear the Martin had... blue jeans. Yeah. <laughs> those were the worst. I don't know who fit those things, but I certainly didn't. Yeah. Uh, wow. I used that butter just because it was a good story. You know, yeah. I didn't care about my golf game. No, I remember I, that. I now yes, use the Edmonton was... Oilers putter. That was Smeaton, right? Uh, I think Smeaton was the LD. Oh, no, it was uh, uh, Nick Sholem. Was it Nick? Yeah, Nick Sholem. So which tour was it? I, I was involved with a couple of them, and I'm sure Smeaton did one of the ones that that we were involved yeah, in. The talk people. Tour. It was he talk. took over. John Broderick had done the one before, oh, and then, okay. and then uh, I think it was Nook uh, that worked some sort of deal. Nick Nick got hired, and Nook worked um, uh, some deal, and and I ended up going out on that tour like right after my wedding. Oh right, yeah. right after my wedding because they didn't tell me that I had to leave the day after I got married. Oh my God. That <laughs> goes over yeah. well, that conversation, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Brilliant. You know, 120 people at, at a venue in White Rock, lovely wedding, spent all this money. And then, uh, yeah, drive me to the airport tomorrow, would you? <laughs> oh, so she didn't even know until like your wedding night? That you well, were no, until a couple of days before. I didn't know till a couple of days before. I was, I thought I wasn't going out till like, you know, uh, I think it was like the 19th or 20th. I got married on the 13th. Um, but they, uh, they forgot or they conveniently forgot to tell me that um, when I accepted it, that so I, I thought I'd be home for like three or four days afterwards. Right. I'd come home from, from a, a funny enough, a Leonard Skinner tour five days before. And oh, then, Jesus. then I got a call from Looney and he said, Hey, we forgot about pre-production. So we actually, you know, need you there on the 15th. So I was like, okay, well, get me a red eye on the 14th. At least I got the next day. And then yeah. he called me back a few days later. It's like, yeah, when we said the 15th, we actually meant midnight on the 14th. So we need you at Toronto on the 14th at midnight. And I got married on the 13th. Oh, so Jesus. I know. I literally. It, it kind of sounds there. cliche or whatever, but 
that's got to be the hardest thing about what you did at that time, like about being a touring guy. It's got to be the hardest thing is trying to maintain, you know, some even fatherhood and stuff like that or, yeah. or whatever. But yeah. but even just a relationship or, or a, a marriage, that's got to be tough. It, it was a lot tougher back then, too, because like, I mean, it, it, it showed me that my wife loved me because, you know, here we are 25 years later, still married. Right. Um, but, uh, you know. I remember like when I, when I went out with the stone temple pilots, one guy on the tour had a satellite pager so that his wife could call him in case of an emergency. If anything was going on with their son or right. anything, cause he, they had a, he had a baby at the time. And, uh, um, you I know, guarantee and then later, there was some sort of tracker on there too, that said yeah. he's in a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, anyway, but nobody had, cell phones or you know like there was no other way to get a hold of people right um, you know uh so like you, it's not like nowadays where you know email and and cell phones and facetime and and all of those things you know i remember the first tour i took a cell phone on it was like i didn't dare turn the thing on because right. if you turned it on in the wrong spot it cost you 50 bucks right yeah you know, you know it, it's funny you mentioned that um the pager thing because the first person ever in my life who showed me a two-way pager, one that you could respond on, was yeah. Robert Roth. Ah. He, he was the first guy I ever knew who had one of those, and I was like, I got to have one. That's it. I need one of those. And, yeah. you know, then it just progressed to, you know, BlackBerry. Well, yeah, BlackBerry and, and on and on and on from there. And, you know, now we carry friggin' supercomputers in our pocket. But yeah. You're talking about the cell phone. So there was a guy that worked at Axe Music. I was selling lighting to clubs and installations and stuff. And he was the audio uh, engineering guy who would help design systems that I was selling to these venues. And um, we were on a trip going from Calgary to maybe Vancouver or something. But we were driving through BC and we both had the big Motorola brick phone that was like a dollar fifty a minute or whatever it was. And I figured out how to forward mine to his. So <laughs> his phone would ring and he'd look at it and go, hello? Yeah, is Marcel there? Yeah, just a second. And he'd pass it to me. And I'd have my conversation and give him his phone back. And I'm like, I don't know how they found me through you. That's weird. Why didn't they just call my phone? And this kept happening for, you know, like four hours on this drive. And finally he's like, dude, you're fucking me. And I went, yeah, yeah, I am. You're right. I am fucking you. Yep. Yeah. But uh, anyways, I digress. So, well, yeah. So you're living in Atlanta now. Uh, with your wife. Well, I didn't end up moving to Atlanta till 99. So oh. I ended up. I did, uh, I finished that Leonard Skinner tour, went home and then Looney called me, um, a couple of months later and said, uh, or a month or so later and said, I need you to go out with, uh, uh, salt and Peppa and this new guy called R Kelly. And, oh, uh, boy. yeah. So he said, I need you to be R Kelly's, uh, lighting LD. And he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to design it. Uh, Robert, Robert's going to design it. And then you go out and, uh, and operate it, program it and operate it. And, and I had, was one of the few people that knew this console at the time called the Compulite that yep. was sort of 
pre whole hog era, right? Was it animator and or scan commander or animator? Yeah. The animator. Yeah. So it was a nightmare of a console, but it was the yeah, first was. like real moving light console, you know? Yeah. That wasn't so. a, that wasn't an artisan. So, right. Um, exactly. So I ended up using that. And, and so I, they said, but then he came back, he said, I can't have you, uh, I want you to be the crew chief and you can't be the crew chief and the LD for one of the acts because it's a co-headlining bill. So that'd be a conflict of interest. So I just want you to be the crew chief and we'll get this other guy to do it. And speaking of nicknames, that was a, that was a funny bunch because the LD for salt and Peppa was Scooter. The uh, guy who ended up coming out and being the LD for R. Kelly was Gonzo. Yeah, and my buddy Duck was also on the tour, so I remember like a stagehand <laughs> yeah, coming a up once, names. once going. So let me get this straight: it's Red Scooter, Gonzo, and Duck. Is this like a Muppets thing, or what do you guys? <laughs> right. like? What it does sound like? It sounds like a band on the Muppets. Right. That's hilarious. And his yeah. name's John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Funny. So yeah, we ended up doing that. I ended up doing that tour, and just that one was that was a pretty rough tour um there was a it was the infamous um five nights uh in two cities in three days or five shows in two cities in three days so we played radio city music hall well first they really didn't tell us what they were doing the itinerary just said new york and washington didn't actually like say what was going on and so we didn't find out till we were almost you know, at that point in the tour, it's like, oh, by the way, we're going to load out of Detroit. We're going to go straight to New York, load into Radio City Music Hall. And then we're going to, uh, and then we're going to load in the uh, the lighting uh, in the air and fly that up. We're going to load in the PA. And we're going to fly all of that. And then we're going to leave. And then we're going to come back the next morning. They're going to have a, a fashion show or something in front of the curtain the next morning. And then we're going to come in at like noon after that's done, do the set. And all the floor lighting and everything and then we're going to do uh an eight o'clock show and then we're going to reset we're going to do a midnight show and then we're going to walk away and go back to the hotel come back at noon reset and do a midnight show Jesus load Christ. out uh and go straight to washington dc load into constitution hall which is if i don't know if you've ever been there it's a terrible venue to do a show. lovely historical no. venue daughters of the uh of the constitution or whatever run it but they uh um and it's historical like you're not can't break anything there doing yeah yeah so anyway terrible venue and we loaded in there and then we did a uh an eight o'clock show reset did a midnight show and then loaded out and and when it was all said and done uh the uh production manager came on the bus and handed everybody an envelope with fifty dollars in it I threw well, mine back at him. <laughs> I said, you keep it. You guys need it more than me. Yeah. Wow. For doing all of those extra shows and, and all of that. It's you like, know, that I think it's Robert. For... I think it was Robert who told me early, early, like, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. He said, now, if you ever have to do settlement on one of those shows, you know, it's yeah. tricky. It can be really tricky, you know? Yeah. So Start yeah, figuring out oh where those broken chairs come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's wild. No. Yeah, I yeah. So do that. I went off of that tour and I went right off that tour and right onto the Indigo Girls, which was night and day. You know, it was just like the nicest people in the world. 
you know, tiny little rig playing 3,000 and 5,000 seat theaters, uh, loading in at 10 o'clock in the morning, done by, by noon, one o'clock, just everything was, they were just so nice. They carried catering. Yeah. It was just, just a, a wonderful experience to, to, to go from that to that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but it was about that time. It was just when I was ending the salt and pepper tour that, uh, Robert called me and her said, Hey, we need to talk about what you're getting paid. And, uh, I'm like, yeah. Cause I want to raise, you know, and he's like, yeah, well, so I asked, I asked, uh, a couple of the other guys, so how do you deal with Robert when it comes to talking about money? He says, well, first get a number in your head that you want. And then ask for like twice that <laughs> and he'll laugh at you. He'll laugh heartily at you yeah. and then he'll settle somewhere, hopefully close to the number that you want. Yeah. So I did exactly that. I asked for double what I was making and, and he laughed at me. Just, you've got to be getting me Gibson. Let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he ended up settling for close to what I actually wanted and, and then and went out on that, that Indigo Girls uh, tour. Cool. Um, and I did that. I, they ended, I ended up being with them for like two years, um, just on wow. and off throughout that tour. Yeah. They were, uh, they're just great people to work with. And it was such an easy, fun tour to, to be on. They always gave you tour bonuses at the end of the tour. And, yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't you end up on Kid Rock at some point, like after, I, cause I think Nook yeah, stopped so, touring and you took over well, or something. Well, that was a, that was actually, I think that's the last time I saw you in person was at a Kid Rock yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, I used to love Florida. going to Kid Rock shows because, uh, you know, God forbid, you know, Robert comes out at the end of the gig and goes, hey, let's go to the strip club down the road, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it was funny because I did end up um, uh, going out with with Bob and it was and it was Nook that put me out there. Um, I had done I had done Sugar Ray for Nook. Yeah. And and then we were doing a. We had to do this this show called at uh, the Gravity Games, and it was uh, Kid Rock was the headliner and the Foo Fighters and Busta Rhymes and Primus and a whole bunch of different bands. Yeah. And um, anyway, we were flying up there, and 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 Nook said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to get you to to be the uh, the crew chief, and then uh, for for Kid Rock." And I said, "No." way i am not going out with some white rap guy that's you know he this just does not look like my scene at all i don't want to yeah. do this and he's like no you're gonna you're gonna do it and i'm like no no i'm not and, and you can't make and i told looney i said you can't make me <laughs> yeah and uh turned out looney could um <laughs> so, so nook and i went up and 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 i you know had never really didn't really know kid rock at all um i bought a a copy of Rolling Stone because he was on the cover in the airport on the way up there, and uh, so read a little bit about him, and and then we did this show, and and it was this horrible rig that Nook, nice looking rig that Nook had come up with, but a horrible thing to put together. Yeah, and uh, and I put the rig together for him, and I said, you you can't tour this rig. This is not a touring rig. This you know you you can never make me tour this rig. He's like, oh, I would never make you tour this rig, Red. This is just for a one off. Well, turns out when Bob saw the rig, he's like, this is exactly what I want. Can we tour yeah. this? And Nook said, right. yeah, of course we can. And then he came yeah. back over and said, hey, Red, you got to figure out how to tour this thing. I'm like, so I ended up 
going out, putting the rig together, figuring out how to, how to make it work and going out on it. And there was another fellow that was actually running the show at that point. And, oh. um, he wasn't, um, he wasn't very good. Um, yeah. uh, at, at, he wasn't good at what he was doing. Nook had pre-programmed the entire show on a, on a hog. And, um, and unfortunately he just couldn't run it the way Nook had programmed it. Yeah. He'd run ahead a few cues cause he, he, he just wanted to hit the beat every time. And it's like, sometimes you just had to hit it and let it do its thing. He just couldn't stop himself. And so yeah. he'd hit it and it would stop halfway in between a cue and then he'd go backwards and some lights would still be spinning gobos because there was nothing telling them to turn off. And so it would, it would end up being a bit of a jumble and, uh, and it was being noticed you know, on and off stage that it wasn't going well. And, and the answer was always that the console's crashing. And I'm like, I'm standing right there beside the guy every night and the console's not crashing. You know, this is, this is what he's doing. And yeah. so finally one night, uh, Bob pulled me aside. Um, there's a bit of a long story to it, but I'll shorten it to, uh, I got called to, to, we were at a little party in one of the hotel rooms where we were staying and, and I got this call saying, Hey, Bob wants to see you up in his room. So I went up to Bob's room and walked in. He said, get in here. And then he threw me a little package of uh, powder, shall we say? Yeah. And said, rack us out a couple. We need to talk. Yeah. And so I did. And we ended up talking. And, well, he's the boss. Uh, you got to. Yeah. And so, and then he said, you know, can you run the show? I said, of course I can run the show. I broke, you know, I had, uh, Nook had just, just prior to that, Nook had been diagnosed with cancer and uh, and wasn't sure that he was going to be able to even be at pre-production. So I had run the whole show, every cue in it, had you know had learned the whole thing on WYSIWYG in case I had to be the one to program it if Nook couldn't come out. And uh, so I knew the show show well. And so when Bob asked me if I could do it, I said, yeah, of course I can. So I ended up, we finished that tour and then I took over as his LD after that. Oh, wow. Did, Two more tours with Nook as the designer, and he is the LD. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize that Nook's cancer went back that far. He had this was uh, at that time it was prostate cancer he had, so he uh, they gave him radiation seeds, um, and uh, and so he to kill the cancer, and it was successful. He beat the cancer, um, and the side effect of that was that he was sterile and would never have any more children well as it turned out they were wrong because he did have another child uh lenny with this with mary lou his current wife um and then the cancer that he got this last time that the uh was pancreatic cancer right and he beat that uh but the chemo yeah and the radiation just was too much for for his system and it shut down afterwards yeah that's what oh it's terrible terribly sad yeah such a such a giant human that guy yeah he was he touched a lot of people amazing you know you know who who was it who did the very best nook impersonation ever like had his voice dialed and all of his mannerisms (laughs) and stuff it was amazing i can't remember who that is but I'll have to have him on the podcast and do a whole podcast with him as Nook. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny because yeah. Nook and I were planning a podcast and we just kept canceling it and fast forwarding by a couple uh, of weeks because he kept saying, no, my voice is still shit. You know, let's wait another week. And uh, uh, and then, yeah, we just yeah, then, didn't get it done. Yeah. He had a, you know, he had a lot of uh, interesting 
interesting stories you know i love his book you know i uh, loved his book uh, too the old old man's musings yeah i know. love that book he that's called, a fantastic he, book he called me a couple of times to like fact check himself like he would as we all remember everybody remembers everything in their own way right and, right of course but i remember he called me the one time he goes hey you remember that metallica tour we did uh summer sanitarium i'm like yeah i remember summer, San summer sanitarium but i don't remember you being there nook he's like <laughs> yeah yeah i was on that tour I'm like, no, you were on the Millennium Tour that we did prior to that tour. Funny. It's like, oh, right, right. Uh, and and he had uh, we did a uh, a run in uh, for the Millennium New Year's with Metallica. Yeah. And it was uh, we did uh, it was LSD. I was the LSD crew chief and Kid Rock's lighting director. Okay. Um, and uh, so we did stadium. We did like three stadiums in uh, in Florida. And then, uh, then I got off of the Metallica crew bus onto the Kid Rock crew bus. Instead Jeez. of flying to New York, I had to ride the crew bus wow. <laughs> because I was no longer a part of the Metallica crew. And upstaging took over uh, for oh. the rest of the the the, the, sh the show in uh, at the Silverdome, and then the the ensuing tour after that with wow. Kid Rock opening. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, it was a fun fun time. When did you actually live in? Atlanta. When did you move there? 99. So, oh, right. uh, right before that, that first kid rock tour, I, I was, when Nook got cancer, I was right in the middle of buying a house in, in Atlanta. Oh. So I was prepping the tour by myself, buying a house and learning all the programming from Nook. Wow. So it how was, long did you end up um, staying there? I lived there till 2000. I moved in uh, 99 and we lived there till 2006. Okay. Um, yeah, I always. But my history in Atlanta actually, goes back. Yeah, I forget yeah. that you lived there because the only reason I remember is because I know you're a Falcons fan. Like you're always, you know, posting nonsense <laughs> about the Falcons. Like they have yes. a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know what? The worst part of that was was I, I I was on a plane the other day and and I had a you know killing some time for and so I oh, watch watch a movie. So I watched Eighty for Brady. And I don't know what that of course, is. eighty. It's a show with uh, Lily Tomlin and uh, uh, Jane Fonda. Okay. And uh, anyway, they, they're old ladies and they're or older, older women. Uh, and they yeah, careful. They, they, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I try. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, they they end up going to uh, to to go see Tom Brady. They want to go see Tom Brady play in the Super Bowl. Okay. So they, you know, make their way to the Super Bowl to see Tom Brady play in the Super Bowl. Well. Guess which Super Bowl? Yeah, of course he's had like twenty-seven <laughs> Super Bowls. It has to be that one. Yeah, it has to be that one. You know, it's like really, I have to relive this. Uh, <laughs> I were you at the game? I wasn't at the game. I was I was here at home watching the game. Uh, and and I and just a little side note to that game. I I used to. I haven't done it in a while, but I used to every year. I would go and put twenty dollars on the Falcons to win the Super Bowl. Yeah, in Vegas every year. That year, I had put twenty dollars on the Falcons to win the Super Bowl at forty-four to one, <gasps> and they screwed that at, up for you. At oh. halftime, I was counting my money. Yeah, no I, kidding. Was, uh, what was it? it was twenty-seven 20 to, to three or something? Pay, I forget the yeah. score. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, "God, this isn't. This is great. I'm going to get yeah. paid. They're going to win. This is all perfect." Yeah, that didn't work out. I was so um, happy because you know I'm a Dolphins fan, and we hated Tom Brady, and we hated. 
the Patriots. I mean, we didn't used to think about the Patriots because they just sucked every year. Like Bledsoe would come down, yeah. we'd pick them off 17 times in a game, you know? And uh, yeah. then they get this Tom Brady guy, and all of a sudden he's winning everything, and it's like, come on, man. So we yeah. started hating them even more than the Jets somehow. So I was so yeah. happy that you guys finally had beat them. And then, Jesus Christ, how, like – it's got to be in the record books for the world's biggest implosion of a <laughs> Super yeah. Bowl game. I yeah, know. I know. And you could just feel it coming. Oh, <laughs> it was so yeah. bad. It, and what a what a black and white, you know, like the first half, they couldn't do anything wrong. And the second half, they couldn't do anything right. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. Anyways, I'm not trying to rub rub uh, salt in the wound here. I'm sure I've, it still hurts. I've but... gotten over it a bit now, you know. Well, the worst part is you're never going to get back there again. I mean, imagine that. Like, not only did you blow the Super Bowl, you're never going to get back to another one. So. You're telling me this is a Dolphins fan? Hey, watch. <laughs> watch what's coming this year. We got a we got a freight train coming this year. I don't know. We got such a big question mark at quarterback. Like, he's suddenly gone from last year, everybody going, geez, this wasn't a very good move with this guy, to now he's like, God, you know, oh, my God, we're going to make every passing record in the world. And, yeah, I don't know, man. <clears throat> First, you got to keep the guy on the field the for a couple games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's going to be an interesting season. We'll see. I I am good. I still go. I go to the Seahawks games when I'm here in town. I'm, I, oh, I'm yeah? a bit of a Seahawks fan, but I mean, always Falcons first. Yeah. Really? And was that Canadian, just because that I'm was actually... your your first exposure to American football, basically? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was. You know, I I knew American teams from watching. You know, in Canada, but it was yeah. the Falcons were my first. You know, Atlanta was my my you know first American city that I kind of considered a place that I new people and grew, yeah. you know, and, and did things. And both my children were born there. And, uh, so you're not a Rough Riders yeah. fan, are you? Of course. Saskatchewan Rough Riders. You are? Yeah. I had, wow. yeah, I had season tickets when I got out of high school. They just had, got had beat little, by little the money, Lions but... this weekend. My, my neighbor, I know. my neighbor here in, uh, in Canmore is from Saskatchewan and she's a, she's a big fan and they flew out for the game in, in Vancouver last weekend yeah. and got beat. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm also, you know, the one, the one I always get a laugh out of, and, and as a fellow Canadian, I'm sure you can understand this too, yeah. is uh, the Blue Jays were just here in Seattle playing yeah. the Mariners. Okay. And I always tell people, I says, if you ever want to be dispossessed of the idea that Canadians are nice people, just come to Seattle when the Blue Jays fans come down from Canada. Oh, really? <laughs> it's nasty? Uh, well, you know, Canadians do like a, like a few pops, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, we and, we like and to they, drink. And there, there's that sports. feeling of we're taking over. You know, like you go from the place will be three quarters uh, Blue Jays fans. Yeah, and they come in with the idea that they're you know they're like they're like Toronto Maple Leafs fans. They're, you know, we're we're taking over your building. Right. Well, that South Florida is the worst market in the world for that because everyone a wants to come to South Florida in the winter for sports, right? Um, mm -hmm. So you know, Dolphin Stadium is usually half full of Jets fans or Buffalo fans or whatever fans. Yeah. Right? Bears are another one that they always come and buy all our tickets for the games, uh, especially if the Dolphins are doing badly, because then there's loads of tickets available anyway. But but the Panthers, what they do or did this year in the playoffs, they you had to have a Florida driver's license to be able to buy a ticket to a Panthers game. Um, right, but. 
what they did in in regular season games for years now is they actually market the game in Montreal or Toronto when it's a weekend game. They always schedule Maple Leafs games and Montreal games um, on mm-hmm. the weekends. And so then what they do is they create a package where for less money than you could buy a, a ticket to the to the Habs or the Maple Leafs, you could get a weekend in South Florida, a flight, and tickets to the game, right? And yeah. uh, so, you know, I used to have season tickets for the Panthers, and I finally just got pissed because it was like, you know, two-thirds of the people there at a Maple Leafs game were Toronto fans, and, you know, yeah, they were generally fairly nice compared to most New York fans and stuff that we're used to in Florida. But um, but still, it's annoying, you know, when the, the screaming is three times as loud for the other team than it is for your team. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I find it interesting. Like, I've, I've got season tickets to the Kraken now that we have a, the Seattle Kraken now. And uh, and I find it's the original six teams are the are the ones that were the most uh, right. annoying and, uh, and, and the most fans of the opposing teams show right. up in your building. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they'll go Boston, anywhere. Boston, Detroit, Toronto. All those originals, you know, they just Montreal. Montreal fans aren't, aren't quite as obnoxious. The most obnoxious seem to be the uh, the Boston fans. I find Boston are rough. <laughs> Philly, Philly are rough. Philly are tough. Yeah. Philly can be pretty nasty. Their fans. I've always been yeah. sort of against New York teams. Uh, it started with hockey. You know, I always hated the Rangers and and the Devils yeah. and the Islanders and really the only New York team that I don't dislike in a horrible way is the giants and you probably hate them because they're in the with the falcons yeah. the nfc east or whatever but yeah. um anyways back to lights yes <laughs> so <laughs> you know you're you're working for kid rock you're in atlanta you're working with uh so prg hadn't taken over ra roth yet right yeah they had oh yeah. okay. when i came back when i came i came back in 97 uh i had taken a um a gig working as uh, the very light uh, operator tech for a production of Showboat, and uh, so since I had, was in the union in Vancouver, and they needed a, uh, they wanted a union very light guy, and I was like the only guy that that was in the union that actually had been to very light school. Oh um, wow! Other than a couple other, uh, there were a couple other fellows, but they had moved on to other things at that point, and so I ended up really, you know, getting the gig and thought well, okay this would be interesting you know um i was able to to actually like um not not tour for a little while in vancouver yeah. i was home for eight eight months and nice and it was an easy gig you know you only work at you know, one show a day and it's all set up so you know you come in there a couple hours before check everything out make sure it all works fix anything if it's broken hit the queue 365 times and yeah get on your Harley and ride home. Yeah. So interesting. enjoyed that. And then I ended up um, going on the road with it to uh, Minneapolis, um, LA and Denver. And then I, I I'd kind of heard old man river more times than I wanted to. And, uh, and Looney phoned me out of nowhere and says, Hey, can you come do Leonard Skinner? And I said, I thought I told you I would never do Leonard Skinner again. He said, no, no, dude, they all got out of rehab. It's a dry tour. It's going to be great. You'll love it be perfect and you know it's got a couple of breaks and i had just recently gotten engaged and i was like oh a couple of breaks go home that's nice. good yeah so i ended up taking the taking that gig and that was uh they had just started the, the company lighting technologies which was oh okay yeah uh that that had been 
it was a lot of the same people from R.A. Roth and even some of the same gear from R.A. Roth. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was, uh, you know, based in Atlanta and it was under PRG, but, uh, but that was before they had started naming things all differently. Yeah. So there yeah, was that still got, Vanco. That was so and, messy. <laughs> that got so yeah, messy. Were, and then the touring yeah. division was going to be LSD and the, the, this division was going to be production arts and this, it was like just such a mess. Yeah. And then it was just finally PRG. I told Jerry that right from the beginning, you got to just call yeah. everything PRG. And he went, no, no, we yeah. want to retain the identity of, you know, okay. Yeah. You know how that goes for you. Yeah. Well, and you know, so they went through all of the various names and whatnot and I ended up, uh, so anyway, I did, I did that tour with, with Skinnerd and, yeah. and they were, you know, they were they were dry for the first few months um and but it wasn't it was not near the uh the the kind of darkness that it was back in when i when i toured with them um, right. originally um and then uh yeah so i ended up working back and forth with them uh for several tours over the years and and ended up doing the indigo girls again and oh, uh prince and uh and then ended up uh uh sugar ray and kid rock and uh, for Nook. And, uh, yeah, that kind of worked out. What, and, uh, what, what period was that for Prince? Was that like pre name change or, um, that was pre, that was, uh, like he didn't, he wasn't using his name at that point. He was oh, using so it was the, the symbol. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so did that ever get in your way? Cause like I, I was, I ended up going to lunch with Prince and his manager and the lighting designer who was building a club in Miami, a glam slam club for Prince. Mm. And so right before lunch, I, I said to his manager, <clears throat> you know, so when I address him, what do I call him? And he said, you don't. And yeah. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't? Like, I got to say, hello, sir, Prince, you know, yeah. symbol, whatever you are. And he's like, no, no, just don't do that. Don't put yourself in that situation where you got to address him like by a name. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I mean, that might be easy well, for you guys, but Jesus, yeah. I grew up with this they guy told, named Prince, right? Yeah. They told us not to ever, you know, make eye contact with him or look at him wrong or do oh, anything wow. like that. Yeah. But I remember standing on stage at Madison Square Garden and, and we were coming up on the dark hour in a hurry and I was trying to get the lights focused on the downstage. So I was standing at his microphone. He had that little pistol. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm like calling focus and I'm like on me, on me, on me, on me, on me, on me. And, and also I felt this like there's somebody standing right behind me, isn't there? And I turned around and it was him. And uh, so he was like standing right there and I turned around and I looked him right in the eye and he looked me right in the eye and, and he was like, my, uh, my microphone. And I'm like, Oh, all yours. Go ahead. And turned around and stood behind him on him, on him, on him. Yeah, <laughs> Trying to get funny. the lights done as fast as I could. That's funny. So, yeah. Cause you don't, you don't bust that dark hour at Madison square gardens. Yeah. Yeah. So but, uh, how'd you, how'd you end up getting back out to Seattle then? Um, so I was with, uh, um, uh, I was, I was with PRG, uh, at that point, they had basically moved all of their gear out of Atlanta and out of Nashville, uh, at that point, And we're kind of consolidating in, in, in Vegas. And, uh, and Robert told me that I should move to Vegas and, uh, and continue 
working out of there and I was, I didn't want to live in Vegas. Right. Um, Can't imagine why not. Yeah. You know, just love the desert. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not my but, thing. Uh, like so many people, the people who I know who live there just swear by it. They're like, Oh my God, it's yeah. the best place in the world. But my best, my best friend lives there and he loves the place. He's, yeah. you know, he's been there. He moved not long after I moved to Atlanta. Larry. He loves it there. Yeah. Yeah. He just, you know, but I don't want to live in the desert. Yeah. That's um, not my thing. Yeah. You know, me neither. When your name's red, you kind of don't do well in with all that stuff. Well, and Larry's always <laughs> posting like these 20 mile bike rides in 110 degree temperatures and stuff. It's like, what are yeah. you doing, man? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And he just, he loves to go ride around out in the sun. I'm like, oh, good for you there, bud. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know. I'll, I'll come over to your house and, and uh, after you've done your ride and we can have a cigar and, and a hot tub, but yeah, you enjoy that ride. Yeah. Yeah. Have at her. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I ended up, uh, it was funny because uh, I had heard um, from a friend that uh, Christy Lights was looking for an operations manager. And, uh, and I was at the time when I got the call, I was out with the, uh, I was out with the food fighters and, um, and I was in Detroit. And I remember I was, I was actually standing outside uh, Joe Lewis looking across the river at the Canadian flag flying on the other side. And my phone rang and it was, uh, and I look over and it's Terry Higgs. I haven't heard that name oh, wow. forever. Yeah. And so he said, hey, we're looking for an operations manager for Christy Lights in Seattle. And I know it's been a few years, but you'd mentioned somewhere along the line you might want to you know, get off the road. And so I said, yeah, um, I'd be interested. So uh, uh, he uh, gave my name to Huntley and said that I would be calling. And so I called Huntley and we had a we didn't know each other, but we had talked a, a little bit through the years. And uh, anyway, I ended up talking to him and he uh uh, kind of, uh, said that he had somebody else in mind for the job and that he didn't think I was the, the guy for it. So I kept him on the phone for, you know, two and a half hours and, uh, Jesus. and, <laughs> and by the time we were done, he was, uh, he said, you yeah, know, I you think you may be the him. guy for the job. Wow. Convinced him and good on you. So, uh, yeah. so as it turned out, um, they offered me the job and, uh, and moved me from Atlanta to Seattle to take over operations here. And, uh, and I did that for three years. Um, was that a tough transition for you going from being a road guy to, to jumping into full time in a shop and not traveling? And the hardest part for me was commuting. I didn't like to commute. Yeah, I hated getting up. I don't mind getting up in the morning. I just hated getting in a car and spending an hour on the road Yeah, and in traffic and yeah. And, uh, and that's what made me figure, figure out that there was a reason I'd been a roadie my whole life. And that was that I didn't like to commute and do those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So I remember I said to my wife at one point, I just said, you know, hon, if I have to keep doing this, I'm going to turn, you know, go all Michael Douglas one day on the 405 and it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Um, so I got to stop. I got to, I got to find something else to do. Um, I enjoy, I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed doing the job. I just didn't like the, the, the nine to five of it all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, kind of what you're signing up for, right? <clears throat> yeah. So did, did she like or hate having you around at first? It was a big transition. I, I it was can tough only imagine, because yeah. I mean, I don't know how many guys, you know, like the, 
but you'd always see guys on the road when you were touring and be like, yeah, this is my last tour. I'm going home, you know, going to spend my time with the wife and kids. And six months later, you'd see the guy back out on another tour and you were like, yeah, what happened? Divorced. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, or turns she out, just turns said, we were get better out of here or we're going to be divorced. You know, yeah. so many people during so, COVID were telling me that, like just how it was such a huge adjustment just to be stuck at home for a full year. Like they, they've never been at home for a year during their entire marriage, you know, and I've been yeah. married 25 years and I've never been home with my wife for more than a month. So, yeah. So it was a big transition that, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, made it through and, um, and then, you know, uh, and then, you know, just as I was, worrying about what I was going to do. They offered me the position of account manager. So that's cool. Yeah. And so was that challenging or, or like, cause I know, cause that's a sales gig basically. Right. So, yeah. you know, that's gotta be a bit of a transition too. It was, Hey, can I, can we take a break for a second? Absolutely. I have- All right. We're back. We had a uh, older gentleman break. <laughs> we both had to pee out coffee so yeah yeah so anyways not, not like the old we? days when it would have been beer uh um, we were in your transition oh, we were... from shop guy to uh or general manager shop manager to uh touring exec or account exec yeah so i ended up um uh they basically when uh when i was offered the job uh they they offered me the job and they said oh and by the way can you take over the microsoft account um, oh. so it seemed like kind of a, uh, a good way to go. Not a and, tiny um, account. yeah. And, uh, and I, I had always kind of felt like I could be an account manager that I had, uh, that I had it within me to, to do the, to do the job and that, you know, person I could get along with people. I knew a lot of people from all of my time in the business Yeah, and, uh, and I, you know, I've, felt like I could be that guy that was, you know, be the account manager that I'd always had it wanted to have. Yeah. You know, I'd learned from a lot of really good people like RA and from Nook yeah. and Looney and, and fellows up in Canada, like, you know, Terry Higgs and Ian Gordon. Um, yeah. So uh, Chris Grant. So since I, you know, I, I, and I had, and I was surrounded also by all, all those same people, you know, yeah. um, they're, they're all here at Christie lights. So um seemed like a, like a good, good way to go and um and i spent the first the first year really trying to figure it out because of course i took the job in 2009 and then the great recession hit right so you were doing mostly mostly uh uh corporate accounts at that point right yes yeah so great time to take on a on a fully commissioned gig (laughs) you know so (laughs) nice yeah because christy uh, christy does this whole uh you're you're basically your own business right uh, when yes. you're, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting yeah, you, approach. You can make a shit ton of money when times are good, but COVID was a bit painful. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then it's, it's also, you're not making any money. Uh, you get paid based on, on, you know, uh, what you bring Revenue. in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a uh, um, and, and, you know, it's a, there's a whole system to it, but it is, uh, yeah, uh, like 2019 was a really, really great year, and 2020 really, really wasn't. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Well, you've recovered. I know. I talked with yeah. uh, with Robert uh, about it, and I talk with Chris McMean every once in a while about it, and I've talked with Huntley about mm-hmm. it. Huntley basically yeah. laid out for me how the whole thing works because I think it's, you know, it's potentially either crazy or or ingenious depending on what year you're in, but um, yeah. but yeah. 
a lot of people say that about you know a lot of things like you know Huntley has done some what people thought were crazy things at the time that turned out to be uh you know forethought like you know yeah. at, at the time when everybody was like all about the whole hog uh Huntley went grand ma yeah and said nope not going to stock the whole hog. Well, Martin. I'm going to stock. I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. The Martin, Martin thing that I he mean, did, the big exclusive deal he did with Martin for a while. Yeah. Right before the 2K came out. Yeah. Which took over the market at that time. Yeah. Um, the racking thing with the, the certain size road boxes, which I remember getting yeah. the walk through the shop on when they, when they did that Huntley walked me through, I think it was Orlando. And, mm -hmm. uh, I was just like, this is either brilliant or really stupid. You know, and I can't quite figure it out yet. And it was all based on truck pack and and uh, making some fluidity, I guess, through the product line or whatever. And, yeah. you know, Amazon has done a very similar thing and it seems to work okay for them, you know. So uh, maybe Huntley was on to something. Well, it does make a big difference. Like I, I remember doing a, a Tragically Hip tour and the uh, production manager as we were packing the trucks complaining like why do the lighting guys always have so many different size cases why can't you guys put things in standardized cases yeah it's like oh it's all different gear different lights yeah. but you know huntley huntley took that and went okay here's the cases make the product fit into the cases yeah and sure makes packing a truck a whole lot easier so you've been with christy now like 24 years then right um no so this would be my 17th year now 2006 i started oh 2006 yeah you were yeah. uh atlanta till 2006 right yeah. yeah wow 17 years that's a that's a good run yeah, yeah and you still love seattle i love seattle i really yeah. do enjoy the pacific northwest i yeah i liked living uh like living in vancouver was was very good for me i enjoyed vancouver a lot um yeah I like the Pacific Northwest. I like the greenery. I like the trees. Yeah, There's a, a West Coast attitude that just kind of, kind of groove on. And, yeah. you know, I used to, and then I, when I moved to Atlanta, I loved living in the South and, and uh, I used to kind of joke. People in Vancouver used to joke that I was a Saskatchewan redneck. And I said, well, when I went to Atlanta, they thought I was a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that so, is funny. True. Yeah. So yeah. So coming back up here was great. And as I, you know, my wife, uh, she adjusted. Uh, she was, you know, from Princeton, BC, to, yeah, to Vancouver to Atlanta was a big adjustment for her. And uh, but she did it and did a did a good, you know, made it through. And um, do you have and, any kids? I don't remember. Two kids. Two kids. Uh, they're yeah, twenty coming up, uh, twenty one and twenty three now. So. Oh, okay. Um, Not two kids but, you know, like, anymore. Yeah, no. Um, but you know, for for my wife, that was really tough because not only did she was she now, you know, married to a to a, a road dog, but I left her alone in Atlanta, uh, you know, by herself, yeah. and she oh, had boy. to make the best of it down there. That's wild, uh, and, yeah. And you know, and being pregnant and husband away working with Kid Rock, and so. Jeez. Oh, yeah. So it was a. It was a. It was a transition, um, but I love, I do love being on the West Coast now. I, yeah. I, I don't ever want to leave Seattle. And, yeah. Oh, and, good for you. And last summer I became an American citizen finally. So. Oh, congrats. Congrats. Yeah, I did that. You know, I, uh, I think probably right after 9-11, I just felt mm -hmm. sudden, like a, a, I don't know, I felt patriotic, I guess, right after 9-11. Yeah. 
And so I went and uh, applied for my citizenship. And it's funny because when I applied for the citizenship, I get back a letter that says, you know, congratulations, we've received your letter and we will respond to you within 730 days. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> like yeah. you send me a letter to tell me I'm going to get a response within two years. That is insane. Yeah. And so then that two years became like after 9-11, I'm sure you remember, you know, Bush mm. was very hated and there was a lot of war going on and most of the world hated Americans. And I was mm. traveling a lot at the time for work to Europe and to Asia and stuff. So I would travel with my Canadian passport. I always traveled yeah. with my Canadian, even after I got an American one until the world shifted again. And then I just didn't update. I actually just a couple of weeks ago, I just applied for a new Canadian passport because I haven't had one in almost 20 years. So, yeah. um, so that'll be exciting to get that. It's always nice to have options. Yeah. yeah. Well, just, and, um, just in case, you know, just in case yeah. you murder somebody and you got to <laughs> run to another country quickly, it's good to have another passport. <laughs> you know, I've always seen it that way anyways. Yeah. yeah. You know, Quick get quick getaway if you need to. So, hockey, you're still an Oilers fan, right? I am, but yeah. uh, but I'm also uh, uh, become oh, yeah, a Seattle, big Kraken right, fan yeah. because yeah. season tickets and uh, and you know I've never I grew up in Regina. You know we had the Pats, but we never yeah. had I never had an yeah. NHL team. So I gravitated towards the Oilers when they when they went to Edmonton. And, yeah, um, no, I'm the same. I'm, I'm the same because I uh, you know I'm a obviously diehard lifelong well not lifelong but since i was very young when the atlanta flames moved to calgary um mm -hmm. but i've always been a flames fan but when i moved to south florida not that long after i moved there in 91 in 93 they got a team and um my boss at the time at martin bought season tickets and he was french and had never seen hockey in his life it was just the cool new sport so he's like i gotta have yeah. season tickets and i remember the first game i went to with him he um a fight started and it was me uh it might have been me and my my ex-wife and uh him and his son and this fight starts and him and his french son are both going what is going on why why don't they stop them why, why are they letting them do this? Why don't they stop them? This is barbaric. This is crazy. And, you know, they're losing their minds. And fast forward six months or three months or whatever, and they're like, kick him, punch him again, kill that guy. You know, they're Kick his they're ass. Yeah, kick his ass. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was hilarious. So then a couple of years later, I bought season tickets, and I had them for – I don't know, 20 years or something until I moved, I lived in Fort Lauderdale and I moved up to West Palm beach and it was about an hour to get to games, which was fine. But then you want to have a couple beers and then you got to drive an hour back and it's midnight by yeah. the time you get home. Forget it. I watch it on television now. I'm an old guy. Yeah, so. I did. I, I did decide to get, you know, kind of all in with the, the Kraken. What? Jesus. <laughs> Damn. You are committed. Wow. So do you have an Oilers one on the uh, other shoulder? I don't. You know, uh, never did never did get an Oilers tattoo. But, the Oilers uh, are damn good. I mean they they uh I was surprised they didn't do better in the playoffs than they did. But I uh, was kinda disappointed in yeah. having to, you know, put up with the fact that Larry's team was uh was, yeah. was the one that won the cup, beat them and won the cup was, was yeah. really hard for me to beat take. My team and won the cup too. <laughs> yeah. But uh 
Yeah, I I knew the Panthers weren't going to have it for for Las Vegas. I mean, they were so beat up. Guys playing with broken oh. feet and broken this and broken wrists. Yeah, I yeah. mean, just they were so beat up. They were, you know, they were over their skis by that point. Like they they uh, they had outplayed. Like just the fact that they beat Boston blew everybody away. Like wow. Yeah, it was a fun playoff yeah. year for me though. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no, I, I was I was in heaven for for the longest time there because it, the Oilers and the Kraken were on opposite nights, so yeah. it would be like there you go. It would be like okay, Kraken game one night, Oilers game the second night, Kraken yeah. one night, Oilers is next, and yeah, and then going to the home games. Uh, but then, you know, it it all came to a to a halt within two days. It was like oh yeah, they're both out. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you got you had it rough. Yeah, that's true. They were like, both oh, out. Heavy disappointment. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never thought of that, but that was brutal. But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, don't move back to the East Coast because that's the hard thing. Like living in South Florida, if I want to watch Flames games, they're at freaking ten o'clock at night. You know, yeah. it's so nice being out here, even on Mountain Time, when you know, games start at like five o'clock and Panthers games start at, you know, seven o'clock or whatever flames games start at seven o'clock. It's great. Yeah. I swear the whole time that I lived in Atlanta, I never once saw the end of Monday of Monday night football. No, me neither. Because I would fall asleep before the game would be over every time. Yeah, Yeah, me too. I rarely watch. I mean, if the dolphins are in it, I'll watch it. But other than that, like I'll watch the first half and then start winding down and, by the start of the fourth quarter, I'm asleep, you know, because we're old. Yeah. yeah. We're probably similar <laughs> age, I would guess. I'm 59. I just turned 60. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You look younger yeah. than me, so that's good. You got that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> you still look younger than me. Yeah, so what else? I mean, uh, what's uh, so you're busy right now. I would guess it's been an insane year. Last year was probably the biggest year ever by miles. Last year was such a strange year because it started off with 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 you know COVID and and things not going well again. Uh, you know, one of my larger touring clients um, had uh, had a Canadian tour booked, and I had the gear on hold, and and I'd actually kept it together from you know so we didn't have to do a complete reprep. And then he ended up having to cancel the Canadian tour because of the, all of the COVID stuff going on and then canceled his fall tour or his spring tour so that that took a a bit of a bite out of things but once things got rolling around april thing it it, uh it turned into a good year and this year's been crazy busy there's been a you know a lot of lot of tours the 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 three worst uh the three worst words that that i've you know gotten to know in the last couple years supply chain issues yeah uh, haven't been as bad this year you know, last yeah. year was just terrible. You just couldn't get gear, you couldn't get parts, couldn't yeah. get things fixed. Yeah, it was couldn't brutal. find any people. Yeah, you know, so many people left the industry. Yeah. Um, and and as I tell people, I said it's not just that people left the industry, because we did have a lot of people that would, that went on to other things and never came back. Yeah. But we also had two years where nobody came into the industry. Yeah, that's we weren't true bringing too. that next crop of people that were always you know up and coming. So suddenly, yeah. when we all Good tried point. to get back at it. Uh, there was there wasn't the uh, uh, the same amount of people to 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 do all of the stuff, and there wasn't any new people that had come in. Yeah. So, what about on on so, the corporate side? Like, I know, um, you know, between COVID and then all of the Zoom people and all of the remote work and all that stuff, corporate 
events, have they been bigger because they're pulling together lots and lots of remote people or have, have they been smaller or non-existent because, you know, they're all remote? Like, uh, I anything? find that there's a, there's a bit, like I'm not up to where I used to be with my corporate clients. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of them are doing um, more podcasts, more studio work. Yeah. And a lot of them, like uh, Microsoft being a good example, really did a lot of work in their studios and really yeah. perfected their broadcast and podcast kind of stuff. So they've been doing more of that. So I'm not finding that the the bigger shows are bigger again, um, but some of them are back and back up to the level, close to the levels that they used to be. Um, right. But yeah, still not. Touring's gone batshit nuts, but but corporates are still sort of inching their way upward. I think, yeah. you know, in the whole commercial, corporate, real estate, corporate, whatever, it just all seems to be sort of figuring itself out right now. Like, what are yeah. we? What is our identity now? What What does this look like? You know, do people come back to work? Do people not come back to work? It's just all, it's all so scattered at this point, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely um, not... Not what it used to be, and they're trying to figure out, like a lot of, like I say, a lot of them have, have gone, like, well, you know, we get our message out with the studio, and uh, we do a do a podcast or do a broadcast. But by that same token, they they also they're 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 also realizing that there's something to be said for in person. Yeah, know? there's huge and value that, in getting your team together. Yeah, and well, in, in, in a sense, personal. maybe more so. Maybe more yeah. so now that people are so remote, you want to get your team together, you know, more often in bigger ways and in more unique ways and stuff. So. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't think, so I think some of that's... events are going to go away. No, no. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm finding that, you know, I'm not up to like, you know, 2018 uh, levels, uh, 2018, 2019 levels yet, but, uh, but it is yeah. coming back. Huh. So. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it depends who you talk to. Cause even within Christie, some of the people I talked to are like, you know, 2022 was my biggest year ever, you know, by 30% yeah. or whatever. And then other people, maybe not so much. And I think it's partly proximity and, and who your clients are. Like you obviously have Microsoft and and uh, other companies up there, big corporations, yeah. Nike. Yeah, and, I do a lot of, I have a lot of tech clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Well, yeah. If, you, if you happen to be driving to Regina at any point and you're coming through Calgary, you know, give me a shout and, and uh, I'll buy you a beer or something and finish the talk we're probably starting to bore people with hockey talk and stuff now so time okay, to move sounds on. like a plan yeah cool well i appreciate you taking the time to do this it's it's uh been super interesting and fun and i didn't realize how many uh ways our paths have crossed in the past because like i said i forgot sort of my 20s <laughs> my late teens and 20s much of it's forgotten <laughs> And not yeah, because I hated it, but because it was the opposite. I loved it. I had too much fun. Yeah. But, but yeah. Enjoying myself way too much. Yeah, it's true. All right, my friend. Well, you have uh have an amazing rest of your day. I appreciate you taking the time. If there's ever anything I can do for you, just give me a shout. Sounds great. All right. Appreciate Thanks, it. Man.